Hey everybody, it's Lance. Welcome back to the Pastor's Bible Study. We're continuing to go line by line through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 15, verse 16 today, and this is an important point because we're beginning to read the account of Jesus' crucifixion and death. And I want to pause and emphasize this really clearly because you might be approaching this text from a couple different angles. You may be a lifelong Christian who's heard this story your entire life and you regularly are a part of Bible study and you experience the scripture every holy season during Holy Week and Lent and Easter. You may also be approaching this scripture as someone who's never really uh, taken a deep dive into scripture, but maybe you're familiar with the Christian story culturally. It's hard to be completely uh, ignorant of the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, just growing up in the places where many of us grow up today. But I want you to pause and try to hear this story with fresh ears if you can, because one of the key things to understand about the growth in the story of the Christian faith is exactly how ridiculous it sounded to the original audiences who were hearing the apostles and the first Christians tell these stories to believe that people would follow and revere and worship somebody who was not only killed, but crucified. Because the story of following someone means that that someone must be great and powerful, right? Well, how can someone be both great and powerful and murdered? And specifically, not even murdered, but crucified. A method of killing that is specifically designed to reduce someone to zero in the eyes of everybody else. It's a humiliating death as the culmination of a process of humiliation. And that's what I want us to talk about today. As we read and look at it closely, try to realize how scandalous this would be. That's what Paul calls it. He calls the reality of the crucifixion scandalous and a stumbling block to groups of people who are hearing it for the first time because they can't imagine the story of someone worth following or believing in or worshiping would suffer an end like this. But of course, the Christian story is this isn't the end, merely a very important part of the story of Jesus' work of salvation for all people. Remember, he's been telling his disciples this is going to happen And they couldn't believe it because it was outside their thought process of what was conceivable and possible for a person like him. But here we are. And that's where we're going to begin when we read scripture today. The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They dressed him up in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They saluted him saying, hey, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck his head with a stick. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put on his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Okay, so I want to stop right there and point out some of the things that are happening. Remember the reasons for which Jesus is actually going to be killed. The religious authorities wanted Jesus done away with because of the things he was saying the ways that he was teaching, the ways in which he identified himself as the Son of God and God with us, and the culmination of what God has been doing in humanity for all of humanity's story. And then remember the way that the Roman authorities are complicit in the crucifixion because Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the king of the people of Israel, the king of the Jews, the one that they've been waiting for. Well, they don't want anyone threatening their power, their authority, the Roman reign, Those are ultimately the two forces that come together to be complicit in Jesus' death. 
And so when the soldiers are actually taking, uh, executing the execution, there are so many elements in here that are specifically tied to mocking the idea that Jesus is the king. In the ancient world, one of the rarest and most expensive things to acquire would be purple dyes. They didn't have access to all the different materials to dye linens, different colors. And so one of the most expensive ones was whatever you need to dye things purple. So it was reserved for royalty. Kings and emperors and leaders would wear the color purple. Well, they put a purple robe on Jesus. Now, they wouldn't actually have access to a purple robe. Remember, it's reserved for royalty. But the Roman soldiers wore scarlet robes, and as they faded and became old and tattered, they might take on a purplish hue. So that's what's put on Jesus' shoulders, an old, tattered, and worn soldier's cape for the purposes of mocking the idea that he's a king. They put a crown on him made out of thorns to not only be painful, but to mock the idea that he's king again. They salute him, say king of the Jews, and mockingly kneel before him. They do all of this for the purposes of trying to humiliate him and mock the very idea that a person like this could actually be a leader. So I want to stop and I want to ask you to remember that our Christian math, right, which is confusing and can take a little bit getting used to, but Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine, which means Jesus has human experiences and Uh, responds in human ways and with human emotions to situations. And so the question I want to ask you, whether you're listening to this by yourself or whether you're part of a group, is what do you think Jesus was experiencing in this moment? Emotionally, psychologically, what do you think he's experiencing? The pain, the humiliation, the suffering, the mockery, what do you think he's going through? I want you to discuss that amongst your group. Try to put names on it. And then that's what I want to use to be in the front of our minds as we step into the next portion of Scripture, beginning in verse 21. So, knowing what Jesus is experiencing and what he's going through, what happens next is that Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus' father, was coming in from the countryside. They forced him, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. People walking by insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! So you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. Okay, so I want to pause right here. The mention of Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus' father, is obviously an inclusion that meant something to those earliest Christians. They must know who Alexander and Rufus are as leaders of the early church so that the writer of Mark's gospel would point out that their father, Simon, was one of the people who was there with Jesus in this moment. I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of crucifixion and the purpose that it serves in the Roman Empire. So crucifixions took place on the roads into and out of town. And it was a method of execution that wasn't just for anybody. It was specially reserved for the worst of the worst because it was incredibly painful. It's a slow and agonizing death. Someone is nailed to the cross through the hands and feet, and they die over a long period of time from a culmination of things. Shock, 
weakness from lack of blood and slow asphyxiation as they're not able to hold themselves upright and breathe easily they slowly die of asphyxiation and suffocation they're mounted on these roads into and from town to serve as a warning sign to anyone who threatens rome's power people like runaway slaves or bandits or people who claim to be kings when rome doesn't want them to be kings they're up there as a, for the reason of scaring people, as being a warning of showcasing this is who we are as the Roman authorities, and if you dare cross us or believe in some power that isn't ours, this is the fate that awaits you. It's important to understand that Jesus has willingly submitted himself to this. He's showing us something. He's proving something to us. He's providing something for us. He has willingly submitted to this to prove the seriousness about who he is, what he does, and what he's willing to endure for our sake. He refuses to drink the wine and myrrh that's offered to him. There's a number of reasons of thinking behind why it was offered to him. One, sometimes it's thought that it was given as a, for analgesic purposes to help people maybe numb the pain that was going through. But it's also mixed with myrrh and spices, which is usually something that's put into wine, particularly low-quality wine, to kind of zhuzh it up a little bit. So what it looks like what's actually happening is the Roman soldiers are continuing the practice of humiliating and demeaning him, right? There's this practice of giving the king the finest of wines. Well, we'll offer him this sour wine up on the cross, and he's refusing to play along with their games. He's not giving them the joy of extra humiliation and participation in it. The, the idea of uh, dividing up his clothes and drawing lots for them indicates that people are usually crucified in the nude. They're trying to humiliate someone in what is a time-tested way of humiliating someone, but removing from them the dignity of the clothing that they would choose. That's one of the things that's taking place as well. And I want to point out in verse 29 and verse 30, this, uh, this challenge that's given to him. People are saying, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from that cross, right? People are saying, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really God's anointed, if you really have this power that you claim to have, save yourself. Prove it, right? It's worth pointing out that what are some of the first temptations that Jesus faces? He faces temptations like using his powers just to provide for himself, just to make life easy for himself. Or in the temptation to jump off from the corner of the temple, ultimately that's a temptation to try to be the savior of all people in a way that avoids the cross, right? So here at this moment, Jesus is facing temptation again, and he doesn't give into it. So I want to pause right there. What do you think Jesus is trying to communicate to us in his willingness to endure what he's enduring? What is he saying? What's the message there? And what does it mean to you? With that in mind, let's continue reading. In the same way, the chief priests were making fun of him among themselves, together with the legal experts. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Then we'll see and believe. Even those who had been crucified with Jesus insulted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing him, some standing there said, look, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a pole. 
he offered it to Jesus to drink, saying, Let's see if Elijah will come down, come and take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who, was, who, stood, who stood facing Jesus, saw how he died, he said, This man was certainly God's son. Some women were watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger one, and Joseph and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, these women had followed and supported him, along with many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him. In this scripture account, we read the culmination of what Jesus has been saying will happen, the byproduct of him proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, the byproduct of him challenging people's understanding and expectations of what God expected of God's people, the byproduct of his proclaiming that there is a power and an authority on earth greater than the ruling empire will ultimately lead to his crucifixion and his death. And it's happened. In that moment, that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you left me or forsaken me, is one of the key elements and one of the most precious jewels in all of Christianity. What does Jesus mean when he say that? Rather than give you, when he says that, rather than giving you one perfect answer or perfect explanation, I want you to turn it over in your mind. I want you to reflect on it in your soul. What does it mean that God with us experiences loss and grief and hurt and despair and isolation in that kind of way? What does it communicate to you about who Jesus is and who he's capable of being for you? When the curtain in the sanctuary in the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple is torn, it's this sign of grief and separation and loss. It really brings home what the crucifixion costs God, costs Christ, the real cost of it all. And then I want to bring up this last statement in verse 39. This man was certainly God's son. That's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is identified as God's son by somebody else. And who's the one that does it? A Roman centurion, someone who was responsible for being a part of this work, standing and witnessing what he's endured, what he's done for the sake of his people, how he's remained steadfast, and how he modeled love and, and the willingness for self-sacrifice to the end, he's the one who actually gets it. And it was witnessing this that made him realize who Jesus is. One of the things that was scandalous to the earliest hearers of the Christian story and to many people today is the idea of how can someone worth following and believing in and even worshiping have been killed, have been willing to submit themselves to something like that. And what I'll point out is this very first witness and seeing that outpouring of self-giving love and the willingness to endure and to sacrifice for the benefit and behalf of others was one of the first converts. Friends, thank you so much for going through this portion of the Bible study with me. I want you to discuss with the group that you're with right now or think about yourself, what does it mean to actually worship a Christ who submitted to crucifixion, who tasted and experienced death, who was willing to go through all of this for our sake? What does that mean? Of course, in our next portion of study, we've got some good news that this is not the final chapter. God bless you, and I'll see you all soon.